Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. There's been a lot in the news lately, from the war in Ukraine to the devastating floods in northern New South Wales and parts of Queensland, among other issues. But as significant as these events are, my next guest questions whether they're distracting from the overriding need to act on climate change. Jeff Sparrow is a regular commentator on this show, no uh, no stranger to Triple R, of course. You can also find him over at the University of Melbourne and read him in The Guardian, where he's penned an article on this very issue. Jeff, great to have you back and thanks for reminding us that it's not only World War Three that we should be worried about at the moment. <laughs> yep, uh, great to be with you. Dylan flying solo, anything could happen today. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't want to perpetually be the voice of doom, which I sometimes feel that's the role I play on your, your program and elsewhere. <laughs> but I mean, gosh, oh, people might have seen that it's 30 degrees above normal in the Arctic today and 40 degrees above normal in the Antarctic simultaneously, mm. both ends of the planet. I mean, that is next level. Um, and it's hard not to think that, you know, we should be focused on this with a kind of laser beam intensity because things are, you know, things are really getting out of control with the, the climate. And yet, of course, as you said in your intro, we're not. Mm. And I mean, you you note in in your article for The Guardian as well that the latest IPCC report came out in in the last couple of weeks, received a a bit of coverage, but not to the extent that you might imagine, given, you know, the enormity of, of, as you say, the the extreme weather events we've been experiencing. And it kind of struck me when thinking about the, the floods in particular, I mean, it's really clear that we can link those to climate change. But, but why is it that you think that hasn't been at the heart of, of the at least sort of public um, debate or, or response to those, um, the situation in New South Wales and Queensland? Yeah, it's super interesting, isn't it? I mean, that IPCC report came out, said that, you know, one of the manifestations of climate change was increased flooding and the, the same day came out, much of Australia was suffering from increased flooding and yet it didn't receive more attention because of that it received less attention. I mean, I don't know, but I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, I remember when climate change was still something that was fairly hypothetical there was a lot of talk where one of the problems about getting people interested or getting people to take action about climate was that it was something that was in the future. It's very hard to get people to, to act about something that may be a threat in the future because they have sort of immediate things in front of them. But as I say in that piece, the problem we have now is in fact the opposite, that we are so beset by environmental and other calamities at an almost constant basis that it's very hard to get the time to tackle climate change or to get the breathing space to tackle climate change as an overall issues issue because we are dealing with the immediate ramifications. And I think one of the dangers that we really face is that governments will now use the immediacy of the climate crisis as an excuse not to do anything about climate in a bigger sense. And we saw that after the bushfires, that, that immediately after the fires, all the politicians were saying, you know, it's disgraceful to link this to climate change. Why are you politicising this? The urgent task is to deal with 
you know, um, helping people in, in need and putting out, out um, the fires. And likewise, in terms of the flood, the, the response was, we haven't got time to talk about climate change. Look, you know, Lismore is, is underwater. We need to be dealing with, with that now. And I think that we can see the sort of new face of kind of climate deflection uh, beginning to appear, which is going to be that the immediate manifestations of climate change are so fear that all we should be worrying about is trying to ameliorate those rather than tackling the bigger questions about, you know, international commitments to, to, to cut carbon emissions. And so I guess my conclusion from that is that there's no event that in and of itself is going to force governments to act on climate change, that there will always be some reason um, why now is not the right time to do it. And that's what we have to overcome. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to get too excited about very slight shifts in rhetoric coming from, you know, Scott Morrison or, or the coalition in general, but he recently talked about Australia becoming harder to live in due to these extreme weather events and was at least, you know, sort of able to, to talk about climate change in some public forum to an extent. And that seems uh, you know, some progress from, you know, in, in years gone by, as you say, in relation to, to bushfires and so on, where as soon as anyone came out suggesting that, you know, this is, is, is happening in more regular and extreme fashion because of climate change, they were completely shouted down. I mean, is there any, any reason to see optimism in that? So Frydenberg was um, quoted in some of the, the the media over the last days talking about the, the possibility of governments helping, uh, intervening in the insurance industry, right? Yeah. Because the insurance industry has recognised for a long time that climate change is real because obviously they have to pay out every time these, these disasters happen. And now, you know, after the floods, one of the real problems people in the flood-prone air, areas have is that they simply can't, can't get insurance to rebuild houses because nobody will, you know, take, take premiums because the, the risk now is so great. But I guess in some ways that, and as you say, Morrison's um, rhetoric reiterates my point. They acknowledge that these things are happening because they can't not acknowledge them. They're so you know, in our face mm. at the moment. But they're willing to talk about intervening to help the insurance industry. <laughs> but there's no shift in rhetoric about you know about cutting carbon emissions. In fact, you know, um, there's an intensified rhetoric about. Uh, about coal being generated by the Ukraine war, um, you know, and that's happening at the same time. So, you know, Barnaby Joyce has been up and down the country saying that the war in Ukraine shows that, in fact, we can't afford to to talk about renewables because, you know, um, ch- you know, children are dying in Ukraine. That's why we need to double down on, um, you know, on on on, on um, carbon intensive fuels. I mean, it's you know, it, it makes no sense, but I feel that this is very much the rhetoric is going. So they acknowledge the disasters and, you know, as you said, Morris kind of vaguely hinted that maybe it was something to do with climate change, but there's still no focus on actually doing anything about it. Yeah, and, and that's sort of happening sort of in the context as well as these weird culture war stuff coming out of, you know, Tony Abbott and, and the usual sort of right-wing pundits really about acting on climate change or, or talking about sort of um, the, the need to act on climate change has in some way weakened, um, weakened Australia, weakened the sort of, you know, Australia-US alliance and the Western alliance more broadly and allowed for the, for the Russian offensive to happen. I mean, it's extraordinary. If you look at the Australian today, I think I counted three separate articles making exactly that um, 
that, 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 that case. So Nick Cater from the Menzies Research Centre, which is a Liberal-affiliated think tank, arguing that you know energy energy security now must be the goal that trumps every consideration because of the Russian invasion of of um, the Ukraine. Chris Mitchell, who's the former Australian editor, is making exactly the same. Um, Argument, and then there's, there's, as you say, there's a broader kind of cultural culture war version of that, which isn't so much directly linked to um, to, to energy independence, but, but 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 takes the form of various pundits saying, "What would Australians be prepared to die for?" Look, we can see how the Ukrainians are fighting to defend yeah. their country. Well, you know, what would Australians die for? Well, they wouldn't die for anything because they've been, you know, weakened by cultural Marxists and environmentalists and. Blah blah, and that's why we. I'm not really sure what follows <laughs> follows from that, but somehow it's it's linked to you know environmentalists white white the national identity, and yeah. so again you know here's this event in Ukraine which you think might draw attention to the fact that there's an obvious connection between energy resources and international politics, and you know so any kind of climate justice has to kind of tackle all those issues, but instead of um, forcing that much-needed debate, it leads to, once again, the solution is coal. The solution is always coal. No matter what the question is, the answer is always coal. Yeah. Speaking with Jeff Sparrow, he's um, over at the University of Melbourne. You can find him also columnist with The Guardian, talking about these kind of um, competing disasters, I suppose, and how they might be obscuring the need to, to act on climate change and, and some of the ways that p- certain political operators and um, and members of the media are manipulating the, the crises as well. And, I mean, on that note, I mean, you, you refer to a, a concept in your article, Crackpot Realism, <laughs> from a sociologist, C. Wright, Mills, I wonder if you can just explain that and, and, and explain how it's functioning here with the way that these big issues tend to be spoken about. Yeah, so Mills talks about crackpot realism in the context of, um, of, of nuclear war, and he says that there's, the, the, there's a consensus amongst the kind of political establishment that, seem, that is presented as being you know, tremendously sensible and, 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 and moderate and, and normal, and that anyone who's outside that consensus presented as being, you know, wildly utopian and, uh, and out of order. But, of course, if you, his point is if you shift the focus and you look at the survivability of, of, of the planet, the sort of businesses of business as normal discourse about nuclear weapons is absolutely insane because it threatens the whole survivability of the human species. And there's something very similar to that happening around climate change. So, you know, when we talk about electoral uh, politics and the kind of horse race analysis of which Canada is up or which Canada is down, there is a kind of sensible centrist position on climate change, which is, you know, we can't promise anything too rash. We've got to, you know, just um, you know, put forward these very moderate kind of ideals. Well, that's presented as realism, but of course, you know, when you look at events in both the Arctic and the Antarctic today, where both you know poles of the planet are simultaneously cooking, you know, you can see that this realism is in fact completely crackpot. Because if we keep on going like that, well, uh, we're all we're all screwed. And I suppose the point I was trying to make with that reference is that. We really need a fundamental paradigm shift in, in how we talk about climate politics and the climate emergency in in Australia, because otherwise we will just, you know, we will just bumble along in the way that we're um, in the way that we've been doing. And 
none of the none of the environmental or the catastrophes that befall us with increasing regularity will change anything that 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 we do. So we'll just sleepwalk off the climate cliff, I guess. Yeah, and, and that has obvious application to to Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine and the very real threat of nuclear war that's suddenly um, you know confronting you know all of us across the globe, really. And of course, that would have disastrous human consequences, but environmental climate consequences as well. And yet we tend to not speak about climate change in relation to Russia's invasion of Ukraine so much. Other things, I suppose, on the domestic front in the lead up to an election um, in the next few months has been a bit of chatter about defence spending and and the coalition and Labor putting up money on defence. I mean, what do you make of that in the context of of how we're all experiencing the really disastrous consequences of war and, um, you know, the the AUKUS uh, agreement as well, where, you know, nuclear subs will, will be sort of, you know, encircling Australia sometime time within, within the next sort of three decades. Yes, and of course these issues are not, um, are not separate in the way that they're treated because conventional, um, you know, militaries are incre- incredibly carbon-intensive and it's not simply that, you know, wars are destructive of, of people and property, property, as obviously they are, but they belch out huge amount of emissions and the rearmament that's happening, well, that was already happening because of the tensions between um, China and the United States, but has now been kicked up to high high gear because of the events in Ukraine, again, will sort of have ca- direct and catastrophic events for, for, for the climate. Because, you know, when you look at countries like Germany that have got, you know, have ditched previous pacifist um, commitments and are now full-scale rearming, well, you know, they're not equipping themselves with solar-powered battleships, mm. <laughs> are, are they? And um, so... So I think it, it, it hits at different levels, like the, the immediate and specific um, issue of the emissions associated with Riyama. But, but of course, once we have this focus on military outcomes and the, um, the need to rearm, I think it'll be very, very difficult to force governments to focus on climate. And again, these kind of culture wars that, that are happening around um, climate change at the moment, there's another version of it, which is much more about the war with China, which yeah. is like, OK, we now face this existential threat. We have to rearm to fight China and we haven't got time. We can't be listening to these, um, you know, these activists who worry about silly old climate change because we've got more important business to attend to. I mean, I think if you think about the Australian political environment, if if um, rhetoric ratchets up about the Chinese threat, it's not hard to see how difficult it's going to be to make any kind of inroads into climate policy because that will immediately be kicked into, you know, down to the bottom of the level of, um, of, of, of priorities, even though the threat with, with China is hypothetical and the planet crisis is happening right now. So it's all... We're in a pretty alarming situation at the moment, I think. Yeah, and, and, and just lastly, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with the federal election, obviously, but there's there's a number of um, candidates running who are very pro-action on climate change, but, you know, some of those would be probably self-identifiers as small L liberals. Do you see if, if there is even a hung parliament or many more independents elected on, on a platform of more action on climate change, that this could, could shift any of, of the ground on these issues and, and, you know, make these links more apparent and and not 
unnecessarily um, ratchet up uh, rhetoric around the, the threat posed by China and, and the like? Yeah, look, uh, I mean, as enjoyable as it is to see the Liberal Party panicking about um, these these, these um, voices' independence, my concern about that as an entire project is that it's predicated on the idea that it's necessary to make a trade-off. So the whole basis of these, um, you know, the, these independent candidates is that they will run on a conservative or moderate economic platform at the same time as they will take more seriously um, issues of climate. So they're explicitly trying to present themselves as centrists in between the Labor Party and the Liberal Party. And to me, I just think this is entirely going in the wrong direction. That if if we are going to have any real action on climate change, not just you know, not just symbolic action, not just sort of token stunts, but um, any real action, well, that entails fundamentally different economic policies. And there's no point in pretending that it doesn't. There's no point pretending that you know we can have uh, retain a kind of commitment to a free market model, or you know, in some cases, you know, extreme neoliberal model but just add some climate policies on top of that. I, I just don't think that is going to work. So while I understand why people are enthusiastic about something different and, you know, see these um, independents as a kind of um, a circuit breaker, I, I, I do think that we actually need a response to climate which which tackle, tackles the core issues, which, some of which are fundamentally connected to the, the way that the world economy works. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Always great chatting, Jeff. Taking a good amount of your time. Thanks so much for coming on Triple R once again. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Researchers have teamed up with youth climate activists to publish a series of papers exploring the school climate strikes. The special issue appears in the Australian Journal of Environmental Education and highlights various ways the international movement has proved successful at engaging large populations and themselves even served as learning opportunities for those involved. To talk all about it, I'm joined by co-editor of the special issue, Alicia Flynn, who's also a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne. Hey, Alicia, thanks. Thanks for, for joining us on The Grapevine. Hey, Dylan. Thanks so much for having me and Vasha along as well. So, mm. yeah, thanks Thanks for giving us this opportunity to share the research with you. Absolute pleasure. And we are also joined by Vasha Yajman, a, a youth climate activist who's been a leader in the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and also co-author of one of the papers as well. Um, great to have you here, Vasha. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so, so excited to have a chat about this. Yeah, well, congratulations to you both and, and everyone involved on this special issue. There's a whole lot of work that's obviously gone into it. Alicia, I'll, I'll start with you. What did you set out to do in this special issue? Yeah, uh, so um, I'm, I co-guest edited this special issue with Blanche Furley and she and I uh, started speaking about this. We're both um, education researchers and specifically on place, environment and climate. Uh, and we really started talking about this, um, the matter of the youth climate strikes uh, in the aftermath of the Black Summer bushfires in 2020. Uh, so while we are education researchers, we're also humans experiencing the climate crisis like everybody. Um, and that was just a stark reminder to, to step up 
uh, and to to take this way more seriously than it has been. Uh, so yeah, it's it's multi pronged really to to re highlight, re emphasise the importance of taking climate change seriously, but also in education research specifically to take seriously what the youth climate strikers were saying. Um, and while there has been a little bit about the impact of the school climate strikes on climate politics, there has been very little on their impact on education specifically. Uh, so that was the main um, premise for, for that, uh, for the whole issue coming together. Yeah, it's a really interesting and, and important lens, I suppose, to, to put on this global movement. And, and, and Varsha, I mean, you've had quite a, a prominent platform as a, um, an activist on, on climate change and, and appeared, you know, on ABC and, and that sort of thing. How did you get involved in, um, in this uh, particular sort of research project? Um, well, so I've worked with Amanda Tattersall and Jane Hinchcliffe on this. So Amanda Tattersall is just an amazing researcher and she's honestly one of the people who trained a lot of us in school strike to know how to campaign and how to organize and how to mobilize. So she reached out and said, would you be open to co-authoring this? And I was just in complete awe and also just realized how important it is to actually have a bit of literature and like research on how things really changed and evolved in school strike and what type of mobilizing techniques were used because it's incredible that like a bunch of kids were able to do that and really show politicians who you know have a lot more power how have the power to vote and all of those things and a bunch of kids who don't have any of those. So how do we actually make a change? And yeah. Absolutely. And what was it like for you critically reflecting on everything that you've been involved with in, in the past few years? Because I imagine when, you know, when you're starting out and you start to try to mobilise people and, and get people to try and sort of sign up to your cause, things are moving pretty quickly. But did you discover things through the process of, of reflection and speaking to some of the researchers about sort of what you did and just how, um, I suppose, much of a learning opportunity itself it was? Yeah, it was really, really interesting to think back like, oh, when I started, it was like this. And then as you know, you kind of work your way through the climate space or through the movement, you realize that you're I think it's just a wealth of experience that you build up um, that kind of allows you to reach out to more people and those connections that you make. And even like meeting people like Amanda through the movement, you realize how important that is. And I think in particular, writing this paper was able to kind of reflect on my place as a woman of color. And, you know, we started writing this pre-pandemic and now two years after just recognizing like, oh, well, systemic racism and all of those things are really pervert, even in these move, even in these movements that are, you know, supposedly really woke and really progressive, those kinds of things do exist. So there's been a lot of reflection while writing it, but also after having it out there now, just realizing like, even when I was writing this, I probably wasn't aware of so much of the politics involved in the climate movement itself. Yeah, fascinating. And and in the editorial, um, Alicia, you, you pose what you know might be considered a, a provocative question, and that is, what if education is not the solution but part of the problem in relation to climate justice and, and the climate crisis? What do you mean by that? Mm. Yeah, so I guess it is quite a, a controversial uh, topic, and and it's by no means for Blanche and I to uh, sideline the incredible work that some educators do in this space. Absolutely. Um, educators of all ages uh, and schools and school sectors have been part of um, championing 
the youth climate strikers. So we're really not uh, targeting them at all. It is very much more the system of Euro-centred settler education that is so wedded to many of the issues that Jeff Sparrow and you spoke about before. Uh, neoliberalism, what uh, Greg Lowe and Trudeau and Fowler in this special issue call petro-industrial complex, you know, and we're seeing that play out on all levels. Um, so schools in Australia are very much part of that complex, uh, very much wedded to those fossil fueled uh, systemic issues and marketization um, and dependency on fossil fuels that create everything from the horrible, the horrors we're seeing in Ukraine to uh, the climate crisis and the flooding in New South Wales. So it is very much entangled. Uh, so we really, really wanted to, to highlight that the school, school system as a whole is just not taking this seriously and, and has been brought to its knees to some extent by the climate strikes. Um, but I also wanted to pick up on Vasha's point just then, you know, speaking about this not just as a youth-led uh movement. But as she picked up, you know, Amanda, an academic at a university, is very much part of that conversation. So part of the problem with education is that we speak on behalf of or over uh, or for young people way too much mm. rather than substantively involving them in the decision-making of what education should be at this time of crisis. Uh, so we really wanted to, to champion community, those levels of community and multi-generational discussions rather than youth-led or adult-driven, very much more those relational in-between community spaces. Um, I think a big, a really major part of the problem with education is that we do have those hyper-individualised focuses and then we go from that extreme atomization of individuals to global dependency on markets and, and petro-industrial complex. So um, that those are big terms for people perhaps not, not familiar with those, but it really is this hyper-capitalism that cap uh, climate crisis is so um, a, a, a product of, but schools are very much part of that that system as well. It's, it's a good point because I was thinking about going along to the climate strikes and it was very much, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, people expressing solidarity and, and being there yeah. along with all the amazing young people who'd led these protests. It wasn't at all sort of paternalistic or anything like that. Yet some That's of the right. ways that the likes of Greta Thunberg get spoken about in the media can be really derogatory and, and, and paternalistic mm -hmm. as well. And I was thinking too about going to the Iraq war strikes when I was at school, so showing sort of mm -hmm. my, my vintage. But um, yeah. But at the time, there wasn't, from my memory at least, much reflection at all within the school grounds from teachers and, and educators mm -hmm. about why we might have wanted to go along to that strike action and what it meant and all the you know crazy stuff that was going on at that particular mm -hmm. time. And I'm interested, Varsha, for you, when you were sort of at school and, and launching these kind of strike actions, were there any any efforts from teachers or, or, or anyone at school to talk about why they were needed and what exactly was kind of going on in the world at the time that prompted um, these actions? Yeah, it was really interesting because the year that we had the 2019 strike and it was massive, like 80,000 people in Sydney, 100,000 in um, Norms in Melbourne. None of my teachers really said anything. Like I had some amazing teachers who were really supportive, but they weren't able to speak out because I guess my school itself was kind of against it. And I remember the day that I went, a few of my friends who ended up staying at school were like, oh yeah, we had a 
couple snide remarks about you heading, but then I had a lot of support when I came back to school. Nobody was like, I can't believe you went or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that the year after, so when I graduated, my school gave permission for everyone to go. So I feel like it's seeing other people in your school be involved and, you know, take that step that kind of allows the school then to feel a little bit more comfortable because I think the strikes to some extent at least have been put in quite a positive way by the media, despite what politicians are saying and just seeing all these young people feeling so empowered that does have an impact on the education system as well to be like, Oh, we are allowed to push children to go and, you know, try and fight for their future. Yeah, absolutely. Should remind listeners, we're speaking with Alicia Flynn, a PhD candidate at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education and also co-guest editor of a new issue of the Australian Journal of Environmental Education, which has um, involved a collaboration with a whole range of youth climate activists um, for a series of articles exploring the relationship between the youth climate strikes and, and education. And we're also joined by one of the um, the co-authors of those papers, Varsha Yajman, who also was a youth climate activist or just a climate activist, um, activist herself. And I mean, Alicia, you work in the university setting. We've talked a little bit about mm-hmm. schools, but do you see a, a distinction or, or anything that sort of, you know, schools should be doing differently to universities in this space or even how well universities are um, exploring some of these issues that you outlined earlier? Yeah, sure. I mean, again, picking up on what Vasha said, you know, a lot of school uh, teachers are quite hamstrung by what they are able to do and how they are able to support it and whether they should and how they should. you know, it's a different sort of scenario at university. So I teach educators. I'm a teacher educator. Um, so I'm talking to pre-service teachers all the time, every day, uh, and hearing from them um, about the lack still of, of taking climate change seriously, both pretty much on, on every level of school education. Um, so that is... Uh, from curriculum, what is taught, how we teach about it, to pedagogies, like how we're actually learning with climate crisis, uh, and then the governance uh, and operations of schools. But universities don't do this much better. So, uh, you know, there's no compulsory climate change uh, subject for, for, for most universities. Um, it, it's very, there's very little of it in teacher education except where it's specific to um, environmental science for science teachers. And, and stuff like that. So, uh, that yeah, at this stage on pretty much every level of education, I've also worked in the early childhood education sector. Uh, so from early childhood to primaries to secondary to tertiary education, formal education is really not taking the climate crisis seriously, unfortunately, while there are some amazing research projects happening. So there's an international project headed up by Marcy McKenzie, who was in Canada, now is at MGSE, so uh, University of Melbourne, um, looking at the policies of climate change education around the world, Blanche Fairley also does amazing work in this space and, and um, Eve Mays, is, uh, they're all looking at this, but, but at this stage it's just not anywhere substantively enough, not on, you know, similarly to what Jeff was talking about, we need paradigm shifts in climate uh, politics, we also absolutely need that in education.
Yeah, it's interesting to, to have that breadth of experience across all levels of education um, too. Yeah. And Vasha, it's interesting to hear how you your sort of strike actions have had an impact on the way that these have been handled by your old school. What kind of, of, of knowledge or, or strategies have you found yourself imparting to others given your sort of leading role in some of these, um, these climate uh, initiatives and, and, and sort of activist efforts, I suppose, over the past few years? Are you finding that you are sort of now an educator for others who might be just beginning on their journey? Um, oh, I don't know if I'd call myself an educator. I think it's <laughs> definitely a group effort. Um, and I think a lot of it is just having it like providing or kind of being there for people when they're going through the, you know, it is quite a tricky space. Like in, in the climate movement, you get a lot of criticism. It's a lot of burnout. And also added on top of that, being a woman, being a person of color, any of those things, it does add a lot of complexity. So mm-hmm. rather than an educator, I think just like being there and being like, hey, I know what it's like, um, or like I face this same amount of criticism or like a similar level, let's have a chat. And then just, I guess, having that conversation always helps. It helps me and hopefully it helps that other person as well. So I think a lot of it is also being being able to break out of the stereotypes. I mean, it definitely has been difficult for me as well. Sometimes being like, hey, parents going to skip school today and like head to this thing (laughs) or like, I'm not going to go to this class because I need to go to a meeting. Those sorts of conversations are harder in like South Asian families, for instance, because of stigma and, you know, just like being targeted as a person of color by police, et cetera. So yeah. I think having those conversations, it's just what I've been trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and the, the strike action coming up on March the 25th, what sorts of initiatives are you involved with there? Yeah. So um, I work at a South Asian climate justice organization called SAPNA, Climate Solidarity, and we're going to have a small contingent there. Um, I'm also just helping like with media wrangling and things like that. So just really keen to to see as many people as possible. I feel like the pandemic has swept the issue of climate justice under the rug and mm-hmm. totally understand that people feel really consumed by all the news of the pandemic and now a war. But climate justice and climate change hasn't stopped um, <laughs> along the way. So just, yeah, really trying to see as many people as there. Yeah, and, and Alicia, just lastly, I mean, these articles are obviously in an academic journal. They'll mainly mm-hmm. be read by academics. But at the beginning, you talked about the fact that as researchers, you're, you're people and we all have a stake in in the climate situation. Uh, do you mm-hmm. sort of have any um, uh, sort of any means or, or plans to have sort of a public facing event or, or anything coming out of this that might be maybe for, you know, general population to engage with? Yeah, thanks for that, Dylan. Tomorrow night we are launching the issue. So it's through the um, Sydney Environment Institute. If people want to look that up, you can just Google Sydney Environment Institute and the the youth climate strikes or the school climate strikes. Um, We are really very much wanting to to keep this conversation happening as a as a general um, you know general community response because we we really don't want this research to be locked up in academia. Um, It it very much loses its impact. It needs to get out into schools, out into the community. So speaking with the wonderful Triple R community radio listeners, community uh, is where it's at. Um, so I really uh, commend 
their articles to people. Um, they, there are 10 excellent research papers in this special issue um, honouring a lot of young uh, climate strikers as well as master's students and, and early career researchers as well as more established researchers uh, looking at young people, um, many themes. Um, but Vasha, I have to tell you, you are my educator and Blanche, we have learned a lot from you and working with you. So thank you so much. And I really would um, strongly recommend all everybody to get out there on Friday, March 25th, if it is uh, available to you to join with uh, the School of Climate Strikers at the next major global climate strike movement since the pandemic. But they hadn't gone away. So they had organised online all throughout the pandemic. Um, but this, you know, there's nothing like seeing the masses on the streets in real world to, to get the momentum back again. Um, all of these issues that we're facing are connected to fossil fuel extraction and climate crisis. So, so please work together with each other. Uh, keep building momentum, building hope and building, um, you know, change, changing the story in education and elsewhere that we can do things differently. And it is very much working with others across generations, across places, yeah. across sectors uh, to, to change the story. Well, um, congratulations again on all the work you've done on this and best of luck with, with that event um, uh, tomorrow night, you said? And, and, yeah, uh, tomorrow and at 5 to 6 online. Fantastic. And, and any other events coming, coming up as part of this as well. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today on Triple R. Triple R. There have been a lot of questions lately about how Australia should manage its way out of the pandemic and what kinds of policy interventions or economic paths might prove most effective in delivering prosperity, stability and broader social well-being. There's a lot unknown about our future, but my next guest argues that the challenges Australia now faces have been a long time in the making and warns about the considerable consequences we will face if we don't learn from our past failures, of which there are many, such as it DAS is a former financier and leading commentator on economics and financial matters and he's written a new book for Monash University's In the National Interest series. It's called Fortune's Fool, Australia's Choices and to talk all about it, Das joins me now on the line. Welcome, great to have you on Triple R. Good morning. And you cover very broad terrain in this essay, but it is sort of highly succinct in, in the arguments you make and how you weave all these different um, topics together. The, the picture you paint is not a rosy one for the situation Australia finds itself in. In what ways have we failed as, as a country to capitalise on what you might sort of call our good fortune arising from our you know, relative geographic isolation and um, the, the sort of exports of, of the resources sector in particular? If you actually look at Australia over a long period of time, like the last 150 years, it's really driven by a single thing, which is our natural resources, which of course now means iron ore and liquid natural gas, but historically has also meant things like agricultural products like sheep and cattle. So we've become completely addicted to exporting these goods and living off the proceeds. And so our high living standards are largely sustained by that. And what is happening now is two overwhelming, or really two or three overwhelming factors. The first is this has made us extremely dependent on trade and particularly on China. 
but also it exposes us to a couple of things which are related to the other great challenge of our times, which is climate change. So one of the things about this is one of our key exports is obviously fossil fuels, and the world is going to phase that out. And to some extent, we have this problem anyway, because by its inherent nature, things like mineral resources are finite. So we've probably got you know, 50 to 100 years of these left. So that's the first issue that they're running out. But secondly, they won't actually run out because, I'm, in my view anyway, that they will be phased out. People will be aware that, for instance, the Europeans are planning to tax very heavily imports of energy-intensive uh, imports mm. in the coming years. So that's the first thing. The other thing is, if you look at things like agriculture, we're a very dry continent and the rising temperatures and water, etc., shortages will make life very, very difficult. And what is really, I suppose, the great criminality in some senses of our policies has been we should have known from day one that there is a finite time of these natural resources. So what we did was take the actual proceeds, the revenue boosts we get, and we didn't actually save them. Some companies, some countries rather, have things like sovereign wealth funds where they put this aside, saying one day this is all going to run out. And the classic one of that is Norway. And so we need to actually invest this, develop new industries to provide for the time that this bounty ends. But we didn't do that. We just consumed it. And we just basically wasted it. And I think future generations will have some interesting questions of those that came before them in terms of these dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners would, would remember the, um, the mining resource sort of resource um, attacks that, that was, you know, eventually, um, you know, highly politicised, I suppose, and, and that partly might have gone to keeping some of that, um, the revenue we were getting from, from the resources sector within Australia to, to use for, you know, different sort of infrastructure projects or, or whatever it might be. I mean, reflecting on, on the broader picture that you've painted. Why is it that we haven't really been very good at, at heeding those warnings and planning properly for the long term? Well, I think there's a couple of things. And underlying that is a deep psychology, which I think is inbuilt into human DNA, <laughs> which is we tend to value the present more than the future. And people don't really connect to things which are going to happen 20, 30, 50 years away. And we see that, for instance, most graphically in climate changes. And psychologists have studied this for a long period of time, and they find that if it isn't immediate or they can't immediately see the effects of what's going on. People are very slow to act. So that's the first thing. I think human beings are built in a particular way. The second thing is we all want our living standards to improve. So the population generally wants more and more. And one of the persistent things that we've seen in Western democracies is the demands on governments, etc., in terms of providing government services, social welfare, and so forth, have increased dramatically. And that has led to a rather interesting dilemma on the other side. We like to blame politicians. We say that politicians are unprofessional, they're short-term, they focus on very, very narrow interest groups. And that's all true. But in part, they do that because essentially the population demands that of it. I always say that every country gets the government they deserve. And to some extent, we have 
inbuilt into our political system a series of choices which are very narrow and don't take any of this into account. And so what happened is we get ourselves locked into this cycle. But to some extent, our political system also is built into this. The entire political system, we pride ourselves on democracy and all of those types of things. But people forget that democracy is underpinned by economic prosperity. In my view, there is an unholy triangle, which is fossil fuels and energy. Then there is economic growth. And then there is democracy. They're tied up together. So to some extent, we don't want to rock the boat in any shape or form. And within democracies, there's a phenomenon which an American called Manker Olson, very Swedish name for an American. <laughs> but anyway, he wrote a book called The Collective Logic. Uh, sorry, The Logic of Collective Actions. I beg your pardon. What he says is what happens in liberal democracies is over time, as they get wealthier, different coalitions form, which crudely is lobby groups. So eventually what happens is these lobby groups capture government and capture the policymaking process. So what happens, they cancel each other out, and we get almost like a process of stagnation when nothing actually happened. Because one of the strange things about Australia, it's not as if, as you say, that we don't know about these problems because we've known about them for a long time. I mean, there are reports gathering dust from 30 years ago yeah. about all of this in government archives. But then what happens is we just don't do anything. Yeah, and th there's a, a line from your book um, which which appears so so simple yet true, and that is that political leadership backed backed by popular support is a precondition precondition rather for for action. And and in relation to to what you were just saying, I mean, there is this kind of um, dynamic relationship, I suppose, from from what the public might might want in leadership or, or vote for, I suppose, at election time, which is the way that we we generally gauge these types of things, and the political leadership that's offered at any given moment. And given the, the sort of inertia, I suppose, that we've experienced over the past number of years, I mean, are you sort of more critical of the political leadership or, or lack thereof that we've experienced or, or the public demand for fundamental changes to, um, you know, whether it's sort of climate change or, or other issues that, that are, you know, really significant for Australians at the moment? Well, I think one of the things about leadership is that uh, John Kenneth Galbraith very famously said that essentially leadership is all about identifying the key issues and anxieties of your times and addressing them. But the reality is we now don't do that because leadership in many ways has essentially become very narrow. There's an old joke about political leadership, which is the leader looks out and sees a crowd gathering and says, excuse me, I've got to go mm. because there goes the crowd. I've got to get in front of them because I'm their leader. So the political process is entirely led, but underlying that is a problem. And I'll illustrate that. As you remember, in the last election in 2019, the Australian Labour Party proposed some very modest reforms to the taxation system. And what happened was they were basically wedged into a position where they, A, couldn't explain the policy, B, they were uh, identified that it would hurt some people, which it would, and then essentially what happened was that they lost the election, not for that reason alone, but for a whole host of reasons. But then what's now happened is nobody ever is going to go to an election in the foreseeable future with any set of tangible policies because they're scared that they will be identified with them and there will be a small group 
that essentially vote against them. And now politics has become very focused on identifying little pockets of voters and taking advantage of them to swing marginal seats. So essentially the whole system has become corrupted. And the real issue is, in any situation, you and I both know that this idea of win-win, that everybody gains from every decision, is fallacious. Because essentially, mm. all decisions have uneven impact. And what we have to do as a country and as a society is try to understand that. And, and we don't do that. And what this has actually done, which is even worse, is it's entrenched certain things, like, for instance, inequality in our society, which makes the types of changes we are talking about really hard to do. Because in an unequal society, what happens if, for instance, you make some policy changes, the unequal often basically get absolutely hammered by those. So they're never going to vote for that. And this leads to an interesting phenomenon, which if you look at history and you look at the decline and fall of civilizations, you see towards the end of the path of a particular civilization, what happens is everybody essentially loses trust in politicians, in institutions, in processes. So what they do is they try to loot they just try to loot what's there. They know this isn't going to last. They just try to loot. And so Australian elections, like everywhere, it's not only in Australia, has become like an auction of, you know, what is the government or the opposition going to hand out to me? Yeah. And I want to get more of that. And that does not make for a cohesive society. I always joke that the whole problem with essentially Australia and other places is one letter, which is the letter W. Because we need to have a we society, but if you invert a W, it becomes M. So basically, <laughs> it's become a me society. And unless we invert it back, it's going to be really hard to make these changes. And the other underlying thing is the average person does not spend a lot of time agonizing over these issues because they're concerned with paying their mortgage, having a job, getting their kids educated, and just literally getting through life. So they basically are focused on tiny snippets of information, which might be, you know, 30 seconds here, a minute there, and five minutes over their evening meal staring at the news they choose to watch. And so what politicians have become very adept at and their advisors have become very adept at is these sound bites, which if you actually sit down and think about it, are absolutely meaningless. Yeah. Because they don't do the issues justice, they don't do the complexity of the issues justice, and they don't explain the choice as well. So people react in very, very cynical ways to their choices. Yeah, and, and designed to get to get traction, particularly in the media sphere as, as well, so they have that, that desired effect on the population. Speaking with Satyajit Das, all about his new book as part of uh, Monash University Publishing's In the National Interest series, Fortunes Full, Australia's Choices. And, and I, I want to come to the pandemic, because that's very much the context, of course, in which this is written, and Australia's response, because that, that thing you were talking about in relation to a we versus me society, and the fact that there are always sort of, I suppose, winners or losers out of particular policy initiatives, and there's inevitably a balancing of those priorities. I mean, we saw some quite 
pragmatic steps taken, particularly in the early phase of the pandemic, um, you know, in terms of uh, the, the, the Job Seeker initiative, which, you know, pretty much overnight and, and you know, supplements to, to Job Seeker as well, which lifted people out of poverty, you know, some for the first time in, in a long, long time and a range of other initiatives that were put in place very quickly, really, to, to deal with the immediacy of the pandemic and seemingly some of the old ideological divisions to some extent, you know, didn't dissolve, but, but were lessened. How do you view Australia's response to the pandemic, I suppose, in that first year and where we sit currently? Well, I think the first thing about the pandemic, it had highlighted two things, how unprepared we were for major trials. And the second thing, how unequal Australia is. And let's pick up the second one, because essentially what that showed was inequality creates a whole bunch of problems because Australia has roughly about 40% of its workforce has been uberized. They're self-employed or contractors or peace workers, and they actually work in essential services, in retail and supply chains, in health and aged care, where remote work isn't possible. So they had this horrible position where they couldn't work remotely. Many of them are effectively peace workers or day wage workers. So they've stopped working. They couldn't actually pay their bills. And they have limited buffers. They don't have the kind of savings that people need to get through that. So I think the Grattan Institute published something which says that 10% of Australian working households have something less than $90 to use in an emergency Mm. at about half had less than 7,000, which is probably two or three mortgage payments. So what that did was that compounded the public health problem. And we did some sensible things, like, as you correctly point out, the subsidies and so forth, we did. But then we've taken them back. (laughs) (laughs) Then Then we've reversed that. And so in some senses, that's the first thing. The second thing is the pandemic is actually going to do some tremendous long-term damage because it's going to entrench inequality. The wealthier groups in society have benefited from things like low rates by way of higher housing prices and rising values of their shares and their rental properties. But low-income groups on the other side have to use up a lot of their savings. Some of dipped into their savings like superannuation, where I think we saw around about 30 to $40 billion withdrawn. And this is also going to entrench us across generations, because if you look at children, particularly of lower-income groups, they've suffered more from the loss of schooling because they don't have access to high-quality internet access and all those sorts of things. So all of those things were exposed. So, yes, we did certain things well, but going forward... Anybody who thinks the pandemic is behind us, I think, is being a little disingenuous because we have all our hopes on a single bucket. It's called vaccinations. And we know that with the booster doses, we're only getting around about 50 to 60 percent take up. These vaccinations seem to be quite short in duration, and we really they don't do much for transmission. They an infection. They just lessen the hospitalisation uh, uh, of after you get the disease. And remember, the whole clue to dealing with the pandemic is basically to actually have everybody, not only in Australia but in the world, vaccinated and get vaccinated forever. So we actually have a lot at risk here. And I always joke that we are only up to O in the Greek alphabet. We've got a few letters to go yet, so we don't know what's going to happen in terms of mutations. And remember, 
the one thing about the pandemic, which everybody sort of now sort of kind of understands, is Australia was very lucky because it's so isolated. Now, that turns, we turned into the hermit kingdom, but that also has long-term costs because we are dependent on tourism, we're dependent on foreign students, we're dependent on lots of things which rely mobility, and that's not guaranteed. And remember, while we focus on the pandemic, the other things like the climate issues, the issues around the very narrow economy that we've talked about, all of those things haven't gone up. And as we've seen very tragically in recent weeks, the geopolitical situation in the world has worsened with people now concentrating into two camps. And that's going to have long-term impacts in Australia, which we're only just beginning to feel and understand. Absolutely. And, and uh, in terms of that sort of international sphere, because I think it's, it's such an important point that the reduction in, in movement and, and the long-term uh, sort of damage potentially to um, you know, Australia's sort of higher education market, where international students have been coming in in huge numbers um, in years gone by, and even global supply chains being really exposed in terms of the interdependence and, and particular dependence some countries have through Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine and, and also what sort of happened in, in Shenzhen as well. So in that sort of context, there are some things that at the moment you might say, you know, aren't fully in Australia's control, put in that basket, the gig economy, that's happening in sort of many parts of the world. But what tools does Australia have at its disposal to orient itself much more, I suppose, productively in a way that can, can enhance um, sort of the country going forward and bring about more social wealth well-being uh, into the future? Well, I think one of the things is that we have to acknowledge that there is so much, as you correctly say, that we can't control. But there are things we can control. And I think people have, I think, uh, inordinate hopes for what government can and can't do. So I think the best thing is to make sure that the population is healthy, it's well-educated and highly skilled, and our educational standards have been declining for the last 30 years. So we can do certain things and then be prepared. Lewis Pasteur, the famous biologist, once said, you know, a fortune favors the prepared mind. And I always say that fortune favors the prepared country. So we need to be very agile in terms of what we can do. The other thing is also, we have sided with different camps. We've sided with the West on certain issues, mainly on the grounds of historical and cultural and political links. But we have to recognize that our interests lie with Asia and with China. And it's a very careful balancing act that we have to do. And so we need to think through those issues. But most important, if we're going to think through those issues, we need to actually talk about them sensibly. And I don't see any political debate around all of those sorts of things going on. And I would be absolutely astonished if those featured strongly in the coming election campaign. Yeah, well, um, we'll have to wait and see. And I mean, hopefully we've talked about these issues sensibly um, this morning. It, it's been a real pleasure and a joy having you on the show. There's so much in in your, your book that we haven't managed to cover, but gave it a good crack this morning. Uh, thanks so much for coming on Triple R. Thank you very much. Uh, such as it, Das, there, his new book out as part of Monash University Publishing's In the National Interest series is called Fortunes Fool, Australia's Choices. And um, it's about sort of 80, 85 pages long or so. It's a it's a really easy read and um, one you can get in all good bookstores or you might even be able to, to get a copy digitally online as well. It um, comes highly commended. 
You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Guilty Pigs, the weird history of animal law is uh, the weird and wonderful history of animal law, I should say, is a new book from law academics Katie Barnett and Jeremy Gans. It charts the complex, multifaceted and often quite bizarre scenarios that have led to certain animal rights being codified in different jurisdictions across the world, touching on things like trespassing bees, killer zebras and much loved pets that become embroiled in custody disputes following relationship breakdowns. To guide us through this weird and wonderful history, I'm very happy to be joined on the line by one of the authors, Professor Katie Barnett. Welcome to Triple R, Katie. Oh, thanks so much, Dylan. It's such a pleasure to be with you here today. Well, from reading your book, it it really felt like this was a a labour of love for you. Where did the idea come from to chart this, you know, sometimes wacky history in the form of a book? So, um, Jeremy and I run the High Court blog together, and we had a case, the one that starts the book, the case of Izzy the Staffordshire Terrier, who ends up on death row. And we were chatting about it over lunch one day, and I started to talk about some of the animal cases I knew about. Jeremy started to talk about the ones he knew about, and I said, hey, we could write a book. And that's really how it all started. <laughs> it went from there. Well, the best books, the best projects happen from, from conversations over lunch, don't they? Yeah, exactly. So, um, and we were, we've just been amazed by what we found. It's just been astounding. Like, I found stuff that I never would have envisaged. For example, you might have heard the Queen owns all the swans. Yeah. I ended up looking into that. That's not quite how it goes, but the truth is actually far weirder than that. So the Queen owns all the mute swans in England, and she can claim them if she wants, but I checked her website, she chooses not to. (laughs) Like any good researcher would do. What's the deal with swans? Why have they deemed to be um, owned by, by the Queen at some point in time? So it actually goes back to the 12th century in England where, for some reason, swans became associated with royalty, perhaps because of their beauty, um, because they are quite loyal and protective of their signets. And so, for some reason, they got this um, status symbol. um, Status. So... Basically, they were associated with the monarch, and then the monarch got to let favoured people own swans. He or she could, um, by royal privilege, give someone the right to own swans and put a mark on their beak, and people competed for this. Books of the swan marks were kept, everyone catalogued whose swans were whose, but any unmarked swans could be claimed by the monarch. And it's just totally bizarre, Um, particularly the care which they put into recording who owned the swans, whose swans um, were the parents of the signets and things like that. 
Fascinating. And, and um, maybe because there's so many little stories and anecdotes littered throughout the book that are just, you know, bewildering and, and, and fascinating, such as that one that, that you just recounted. But maybe if we return to, to where you begin with the book and what sort of sparked your interest in writing this, the case of Isbesta versus Knox City Council. Can you just tell us a bit about that case and why it piqued your interest? So, um... The case is a case where a dog called Izzy uh, runs wild with um, two other dogs and ends up uh, having an altercation with some people and some other dogs at the basin. And then later, the dogs are involved in several other unpleasant in- incidents, one of which led, leads one of the dogs to being put down. But um, the council decides that Izzy, the Staffordshire Terrier, has to be put to death. And so this goes all the way up to the High Court. And what we found fascinating about it was I suppose that the dog had her day in court Mm. in a really strange way. Um, While the court doesn't really quite acknowledge her, um, her life is on the line and in the end she ends up uh, being saved and adopted by someone else and living quite a happy life. And so it raised for us so many interesting questions and it also raised all the aspects of law. So, for example, what do you do if your animal hurts someone else? What does it mean to own an animal? Um, What are the criminal laws with regard to caring for animals? How do you prove that an animal has done something wrong. I mean, you can't ask the animal. Yeah. How, how, does, how do councils or courts or whatever make decisions about animals? So it just seemed to us to be a great illustration of how animals raise all the relevant areas of law. And it's also just a really interesting story because I did end up feeling a bit sorry for Izzy in the end. Um, The problem... So the council had gotten the owner to admit that she might have been the dog who bit someone's finger, but it wasn't actually clear that she had. And her subsequent owners ended up saying, look, she's really quite a good dog. The problem was probably that she wasn't looked after properly. And you can't ask the other dogs as, as witnesses either. Yes, exactly. So, which doesn't mean, as you'll have seen from some of the chapters, that people didn't try to ask animals to be witnesses or even put them as defendants in criminal courts in some historical cases. So we just ended up finding some really fascinating and really bizarre 
examples. It's so interesting. And, and one, of the, one of the key sort of underpinnings, I suppose, of, of particularly the way that animals are considered um, uh, by Australian law is, is as property, which people w- would find pretty unsurprising. So if you're, you're, you know, your animal harms another's, that's your property, and, and maybe you, know, you might be liable for that in, in that case that you've just recounted. But, but as you suggested before, ownership and, and defining property can be pretty difficult depending on, on what the animal is and, and the type of relationship you have with that animal. Because if you own a dog and maybe it, you know, it's registered with the local council, it lives with you, you take it for a walk every day, it's pretty, pretty clear that it's yours and people would identify it as being your dog. But what happens if, you know, for example, you, you catch a fish in a public waterway and you think it's yours, but someone then comes up and takes it out of, out of your bucket? I mean, do you own that fish? Does the other person own it? Does, does nobody own it? How does that work? Oh, so that's actually a really interesting question and courts have come to different conclusions. Basically, in terms of wild animals, um, our law, which is based on Roman law, um, says that we can only have what's called a qualified ownership in wild wild animals. So it's a temporary ownership, which depends upon us in some way catching them or controlling them, and then um, if the animal stays with us, it has to show some kind of tendency to return. So obviously hunting or fishing is one way in which you can claim ownership of an animal, and if you show sufficient intention to control, then it's yours. But there are some animals which are quite difficult. So, for example, bees, are they wild or are they domesticated? Mm. Um, I discovered that there was incredibly elaborate European laws regarding bees because, for one thing, in some ways they're like um, little individual creatures, but in other ways... They're like an entity. The hive is an entity. And then, of course, they can get up and fly wherever they want. They're difficult to control. So um, there's all these rules about if your hive swarms, you have to run and keep it in your sight so you're sure that it's yours. And this seems to be consistent and actually pretty ancient. So it's in Roman law, it's in medieval Irish law, um, and... Yeah, it, it was just really interesting. Yeah. Another thing is um, cats. I don't actually think we own cats. I think <laughs> they own us. Ungovernable. <laughs> Ungovernable. <laughs> so, um, yeah, at one point after reading my book, my dad rang me up and said, oh, there's this cat next door, animal law expert. The cat keeps doing its business in my orchids. What can I do? Can I get an injunction against the cat? And I said, Dad, it's a cat. It's not going to listen to the law. The whole point of cats is cats don't care. Well, that's your legal advice. Cats don't care. What are you talking about? Yeah, sorry, cats. <laughs> A court may tell a cat to desist, but um, I don't think 
a cat's going to do it. Perhaps talk to the owners instead. Yeah, that raises a really interesting point, particularly in relation to disputes about who um, sort of you know gains custody. I suppose we can use that term um, of a, a pet um, or an animal that, that a couple share after a relationship breakdown how generally i mean does that generally work in terms of property where it's divided up and maybe there's a mediation deciding who um you know who should have have the cat and then who gets to keep the fridge or something like that or or has there been precedents where the actual um uh what what the animal would most like to do or the living arrangements the animal might have with one partner um compared to the other determining how that that might come out in in mediation or, or in court So in court, animals are treated strictly as property Mm. and it really does depend on who is the registered owner, evidence as to whether the animal is a gift, who paid for the animal, who looks after the animal, all that kind of thing. My understanding is that um, a lot of this is dealt with informally by uh, financial binding agreements where the parties end up agreeing to sort it out themselves because the court can't actually. The problem is, I suppose, that a a dog or a cat or a bird isn't a piece of property in the way that a book is a piece of property or a house or whatever. You can't easily divide the animal up, and nor should you. So, and also the animal is sentient. The animal has needs, the animal has wants, but that can't be taken into account with a property analysis. So what we found is that in some other jurisdictions, courts have taken into account the desires of the animal, including in Spain, in Israel, in Singapore, and um, have kind of, in some cases, they've applied a custody style analysis. In other cases in the US, they said, look, an animal is not a child, but we're going to look at what the best interest of all the parties is. Mm. So I found that really interesting. And I do wonder, so we're going to have um, changes to the Animal Welfare Act in Victoria, which will introduce animal sentience provisions. I wonder if that will change our approach. Interesting too. I mean, I was thinking about throughout the pandemic that a lot of people got got a pet as a as a sort of companion over that time, but might have found that it's it's difficult to um, to have a, a, an animal companion now that we've sort of opened up and getting back to the the, the thrust of daily life and how that might might impact on um, you know whether there's there's any changes to law or how the law might view some of these situations, whether that's in relation to abandonment or or some of those disputes over who should have ownership of a of a pet. Um, um, following a, a relationship breakdown as well. And, I mean, in the latter stages of your book, you discuss the idea of particular animals as having dignity, and this, I suppose, relates specifically to animal rights and, and as um, sort of a, a similar concept to human rights where there's, there's an inherent dignity in human beings and therefore we sort of have a right to, to ha- have that preserved. How sort of has the law in different jurisdictions viewed the idea of dignity in relation to animals? I mean, has that been at, at the core of, of any particular decisions or disputes? Um, so there are a series of disputes in the US where... Um, 
it's kind of the animal personhood movement has tried to um, establish that animals, particularly animals that are more similar to us, like chimpanzees, mm. um, elephants and the like, um, have been unfairly captured and kept against their will in zoos or in places. And they've tried to establish some kind of a... Um, habeas corpus rule, that is, you can't hold some an animal without um, giving a release time and like like a human, right? Um, so far, it hasn't been successful, but there is a case going before the New York Court of Appeals. We might have to write a sequel <laughs> about an elephant called Happy. Um, we couldn't. We couldn't fit it in in time, but um, there's been an attempt to have happy freed. But then this kind of raises other questions. In our final chapter, we use the example of octopuses. Yeah. Because in some ways, um, chimpanzees are very like us. Elephants, like they're kind of sympathetic in a certain way perhaps we can relate to them because they are more like us. We chose octopuses because they're really intelligent. There's evidence that um, they're very clever and agile and can do tricks and things, but they're really, really different to us. Mm. What's the status of an octopus in law? Well, the answer is not no one's really paid much attention because it isn't like us and um, there aren't even necessarily rules preventing cruelty to octopuses, although I believe that Britain's going to pass them. So I suppose one thing I wanted to, or we wanted to explore was, you know, to what extent do we kind of impose our own expectations upon animals of what being a worthwhile animal is, to what extent are we kind of uh, mirroring our own expectations onto them rather than just letting them be animals? Yeah, such a fascinating question. And, and gee, there's, there's a lot of brilliant anecdotes littered throughout this book. Just as you were talking about the octopus, I was reminded of um, of the the photography prize that was awarded to someone who took a photo of sort of like from the perspective of the octopus almost um, with, uh, I think, a father and son pointing down towards it. But you point out that this photo was actually taken by the octopus itself, but the octopus couldn't be awarded the prize, which I think is just such so brilliantly illustrated some of the themes that you explore in this book. It's, um, it's a really fun read and it sounds like it was a lot of fun to write as well. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today on Triple R. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks so much, Dylan. That's great. Absolute pleasure. I've just been speaking with Professor Katie Barnett from uh, Melbourne Law School talking about her co-authored book, Guilty Pigs, The Weird and Wonderful History of Animal Law, which is out through uh, Black Ink um, and La Trobe University. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.